This is part one of a two-parts episode with Dr. Gary Burnett from the University of Nottingham about relatable agents. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to UX Soup, a short-form podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experience of personal devices and services in the home, in the car, and on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. I'm Chris Schreiner and I'm joined today by my co-host Diana Franganilo. Diana, hello. Hello, Chris. So in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about voice interfaces, digital assistants, using voice in different contexts, interactive voice ads. In today's episode, we are going to talk about anthropomorphic or relatable voice agents, what they are, their benefits, potential UX challenges, and some use cases in which they may be well-suited. To help us break down this topic, we'd like to welcome Professor Gary Burnett from the University of Nottingham. Gary is a professor of transport human factors, is the head of the human factors research group, and has conducted numerous research studies on the use of voice agents in the car. Gary, welcome to UXSoup. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having me. Ah, thanks for joining us. So we want to start this by defining first what we mean by anthropomorphic or relatable agents. Gary, how would you okay. define them? This is sort of an area where there's lots of different terms in the literature. So you, you mentioned relatable agent, you mentioned anthropomorphic um, agent, you, um, digital assistant, conversational user interfaces, voice user interfaces, natural language interfaces, you know, the list goes on. And I suppose the common element here is that there's uh, human-like qualities in an interaction. So there's a, an analogy with human-human, particularly conversations. It's beyond the traditional speech interface of commands where you give a command and then the system does something. Here you have a natural two-way interaction. And this would be more, it would be including emotional, you know, being able to determine what the user's emotions are, being able to respond emotionally in an appropriate way, things like that. Yeah, so part of a, a natural conversation will, will also involve empathy. Mm -hmm. So there's some some sense of the, the system understands me and I understand the system. That means that there's quite inherent trust in that relationship. It means that, yeah, you have this this word anthropomorphism. So there's there's an element of human like qualities, not just in a voice, but also potentially in some form of um, visual embodiment mm -hmm. of, um, of the agent. Gary, what do you think that the challenges are when defining the attributes of these agents? Yeah, there are lots. I think, um, you know, when you get down to sort of um, design issues here, yeah, you're working to um, all sorts of different issues that, that are sort of essential to human-human interaction. We're drawing on human-human interaction, but now we're thinking of one part of this being a, being a computer. Then we're into, okay, well, what is this agent called? is very important. Are we going with a male voice, a female voice? Um, what sort of tonal qualities associated with age might there be? What aspects of conversation are going to be particularly relevant here to sort of draw on? If, they, if you think about how we interact in in human-human dialogues, there's just so much complexity there in the way in which we 
we keep a conversation going, how we repair a conversation if there's a if there's a problem or a, a lack of understanding, how that's all represented in our agent is very challenging. Yeah, we've talked before about being able to have AI accurately determine what emotion is being presented by the user and how to appropriately respond because people don't necessarily respond the same way when they're feeling a particular emotion. They want to hear particular feedback at that time. And all of that complexity makes this kind of relatable agent just some leeway, some forgiveness when it comes to agents. But when you start to add an emotion, I think that that forgiveness tends to decrease a little bit and the stakes are a lot higher. Emotions or recognition technology is sort of critical to this, isn't it? But it's even broader than that. It's not just, you know, emotions are tend to be short events, mm-hmm. tend to be very sort of um, exaggerated, and they're not part of normal, everyday human-human conversations. Whereas still trying to understand what someone's trying to say within a conversation is probably more, more challenging in many ways. Yeah. If you think about just simple linguistics, the word it in a conversation can often mean so many different things. <laughs> if you've got th- phrases like John threw a brick at the window and broke it, we know that the window is um, uh, likely to be it. Uh, John threw an egg at the window and broke it. It is now the egg so rather than the window, or, or that's how we would interpret it. John threw an egg into a bowl and beat it. <laughs> now, now, now it is the egg. John threw a glance at the window and beat it. Now, it doesn't even refer to anything. <laughs> it, it's now about running away. I guess that in some languages, and as Spanish, could be even trickier because we don't need a explicit subject. So the system might struggle slightly more because you don't need to have a he or a she or a it to conjugate a verb. And because of the context, we understand. I think that's a good point. You know, all these kind of like differences across languages and all this lack of explicitness, it makes it tricky to design not only a system that works and that works in English, in Spanish, in Chinese. So that's, you know, just a little linguistic competency. In human-human conversation, we can sort of understand that through our linguistic competency in vocab and grammar and and, and dealing with this. So for a system to understand that becomes very complicated. And then you've got the whole conversational competence. In um, human-human conversations, we understand turn-taking. We understand where, what, dealing with sort of non-verbal cues in terms of whether or not, you know, I'm saying I'm going to keep going or whether or not I'm going to hand over the conversation to Mm -hmm. you. Um, If the conversation starts having problems, we have ways of dealing with that to repair a conversation. We might start using certain words like sorry or can you repeat and these sorts of things. Again, very difficult for a system to deal with. I was thinking of turn-taking as well. Interestingly, I was reading some studies the other day about the cultural differences in turn-taking. For example, in a Mediterranean culture, not respecting turn-taking might not be offensive for the person speaking if this is done to reinforce the message or to agree with the message. Another completely different matter is if you cannot like interrupt to say the opposite or to change the topic. So, Gary, have you found any cultural differences in your studies about relatable agents? Yeah, we've got into some really interesting issues there with some of our studies where we found quite strong cultural differences in things like interrupting and also use of politeness terms 
in um, certain cultural groups we respect turn taking and we will may commonly use politeness terms like please and thank you even when conversing with a digital assistant or anthropomorphic agent whereas in other cultures they'll be much more accepting of of interrupting and wouldn't necessarily think in terms of using politeness terms with a digital assistant and i think there's it's partly influenced by cultural acceptance of in human human interactions but it's also what people think about computers and to what extent anthropomorphism exists within the cultures some cultural groups don't see anthropomorphism quite in the same way and so they may not think of your digital assistant in such strong human terms as others in some ways it starts coming over as being very rude when a person doesn't say please or thank you to the digital assistant that's just helped them out with something but if you in your mind you still see very much see it as a computer then um uh, then it's very different and this has come up with um, things like with um, Alexa um, and, you know, other sort of home-based digital assistants and whether or not it might be teaching your children bad habits in terms of whether to say please or thank you. Do you teach your children to say please and thank you to your Alexa? These are really, really interesting times because you're going to have a whole generations growing up around these anthropomorphic agents, which may well influence how they then interact in human-human conversations. This is before we get into issues to do with it being in a car. <laughs> Gary, besides the politeness and the polite words that you use with the digital assistants, what are the different attitudes that you have detected that people use in the studies in terms of interactions? More kind of like you are my servant or you are a help. What is the kind of attitudes that you have found within the same context? So the interesting thing about the car here is it's a very functional environment, very task-based environment. You're getting from A to B and there's tasks that you need to do in order to then, you know, maneuver that vehicle and interact with the systems to, to get to your destination. So that influences how people then respond to it. It's different to it being a digital assistant being in a home environment in a more sort of leisure-based you know, that may well change to an extent as we move more towards autonomous vehicles and and your vehicle being not necessarily being something that you then control, but it's some place that you happen to be in that's mobile. So that said, there's still very big differences in how people in our studies have responded to a digital assistant in their cars. Some have considered it a bit like a passenger and that they are going to, to then have a conversation with it like a passenger and they seek out interactions. Others will see it more almost like a slave, that it's just there to do their bidding and may sort of see it more in line with it being part of the car and part of the sort of the infotainment system and that it's embodied within there. So where people see the embodiment of this agent is really quite interesting. Is it a passenger? Is it within the, the entertainment system or within the car or, or even um, if you're thinking of it in terms of helping with um, automated driving, in some situations, people see it as the driver. And if it's, say, like a robo taxi or a level five autonomous vehicle, then you may well see it as if it's a taxi driver and you then respond to it in a different way. So this whole issue of embodiment of the digital assistant is fascinating. You see for different situations like that, a servant butler versus a companion versus a driver, that you would see different assistants put in for it? Or do you think that the same assistant could take all of those different roles? Or how would it do that? 
So there haven't been any studies looking at this yet. It's really interesting. Most people just stick within a single use case. Mm -hmm. And then you think about what would be a good design there. But when you start having a joined up, you know, future system, then it's possible that you start having different voices coming from your car for different use cases. So it's like your car is inhabited by three different people who have different roles. <laughs> that would be quite interesting. Or you start looking into how do people accept a digital assistant that has a very fluctuating personality um, and it goes between it's now like the passenger and it's and it's giving you navigation guidance. Now it's a training system or, that's telling you off for bad things that you're doing and giving you collision warnings or something like that. Or, you know, another one that's companion and and just being like a friend, you know, to while away the, the hours, you know, sat in the car. So these could all have different characteristics. You had um, mentioned before about anthropomorphic agents and nonverbal communication and, and physical embodiment or some kind of embodiment of this agent. And we've seen in the car demos of, and some production ones. So if you think of like Nomi in China, that's a very basic representation of, of an assistant, more cartoonish. You can see more you know, three-dimensional holographic or real realistic embodiments. How do you think that that impacts how the user treats the system or responds in that relatable fashion? So you obviously have to think about issues of distraction. Mm -hmm. Whilst we still have manually driven cars, that's going to limit what designers could potentially do. But in terms of your sort of acceptance and, and user experience within an, an embodiment, sort of visual embodiment of the agent, then a lot of this will start coming down to issues of brand for a company because this is an embodiment of the vehicle to some extent. So as a, the vehicle is a consumer product or even as a service vehicle and what type of brand your taxi firm has will influence what type of things that you might do with the design. It becomes the face of the brand. Yeah, 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 could well be, which becomes interesting in terms of whether or not there's potential for you to personalization. And you know, a really interesting issue here is about potential negative stereotypes. So if you have an embodiment of gender, let's say female, but it's more subservient, then we're reinforcing a negative stereotype. Mm -hmm. If it's a male and it's is give commands and very sort of authoritative, again, reinforcing negative stereotypes. Yeah, I've, I've seen, seen examples um, in certain cars of as an anthropomorphic agent um, hologram as a sort of dancing girl on the dashboard. Before we get to the issues of distraction, you have to really think carefully here about what goes on with the voice, male voice, female voice. And then in terms of the physical embodiment, do you actually have a human representation, complete human representation, or is it more like the Nomi where it has some human qualities? There's some certain gestures in there in, in terms of eye movements, in terms of a head type movement as it sort of turns to face you or move, moves away, etc. But you don't look to represent a human there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Some of these issues have already come up in the past with sat-nav voices, you know, GPS systems and the voices and about just simple things like acceptance of a male voice versus a female voice. And certainly in the early days, there were issues about some cultural groups not being accepting of a, of a woman telling them where to go. It's caused problems. And but there's issues also about whether or not the message is given and instruction is given as a command or is given as advice. Some cultural groups or some certain individuals are not so happy about a satnav voice saying, turn left, turn right. More accepting of more advice-based terms like left turn coming up. 
right turn coming up. This is just simple navigation instructions, but is the beginning, I suppose, of many of these issues. Gary, we have been talking about physical embodiments, characteristics, how complicated it is to get understanding right between both the human and the, and the computer. We know that you have quite a bit of background on the use of voice with navigation. Could you let us know how a relatable agent could improve the user experience with navigation? So yeah, navigation systems are a great potential use case for this. If we think about sort of natural navigation, then that, that tends to be very sort of conversational based um, uh, with another human. If um, When they know the, the area well, they provide a, a two-way dialogue between the driver and the, the passenger to facilitate not only effective navigation, getting from A to B in an efficient way, but also to help you to develop mental representation of the space that you've just traveled through. Um, which then leads to a better overall user experience because you've you've picked up some sort of travel related information about maybe particular landmarks along the way that are, that are of interest. But it also means that when you then come back to that area again, you have some familiarity that makes you less dependent on a external navigation source. You can start to navigate for yourself, whereas with a, a more traditional sat nav where it's turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right, you, you just don't develop that mental representation of the space that you've traveled through and you become reliant on the technology. Now, if your natural language interface, your, your um, digital assistant is more like your passenger, the informed passenger who can provide those really two-way interaction, bringing in information about the environment and sort of interesting facts about the, the world that you're traveling through, then yes, you can start to, to develop that mental knowledge and that better overall journey experience. Yeah, certainly the studies we've done have shown that happens very strongly. All right, well, I think we're out of time. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And that completes episode one of our two-part series on relatable agents with focus on the in-vehicle experience. Next week, we will focus on how they can help preventing fatigue and contribute to better handovers for level three and level four vehicles. If you would like to chat more about relatable agents, digital assistance, the automotive user experience, or to send us any questions you may have, you can email us at uxsoup at strategyanalytics.com. The show notes on our podcast website, ux-soup.com, has links to our recent research on voice assistance. There you can also connect with each of us on LinkedIn. A reminder that UX Soup is sponsored, as always, by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights in mobile, automotive, and the smart home by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.